0: Civilization civilisation is being sacrificed for the opportunity of a
1: very small number of people. We urgently need financial, political and social innovations that enable us to overcome this structural dependency on growth. We need to change the system. This isn't cleaning up the beaches in the case of plastic a little bit faster.
0: That's vital, that has to be done. But you need to stem the flow. GoSimone explores sustainable change and the women inspiring it. Who are they? What made them who they are? How do they read the world they live in? Our guests share their story, roots, passions and hopes for the future. They tell us more about the alternatives and strategies they developed to tackle climate change. Before Go Simons' third episode starts, I would like to warmly thank our first listeners. I've been thrilled to hear your encouragements and positive comments about the podcast. Thank you for spreading the word around you. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave five stars on Apple Podcasts and leave us a comment so that we can be more visible and heard by a wider community. I'd also like to shout a big thanks to Radio 4 EB, they enabled unable to record the podcast in their studios and Go Simon would not be possible without them. Our Simon today is Alana Mann. With Alana, we talked about food sovereignty, the Latin American movement La Via Campesina, seed privatization, agroecology, political consumption, ecofeminism, and communicating about climate change through art. Hi Alana. Hi Roxanne. We are really happy to have you at Go Simon today. It's Thank a you pleasure for accepting to, to, to come here while you're coming from Sydney for a talk. I'm delighted to be asked. Thank you. Alana, you are chair of media and communications at the University of Sydney, Australia, and a key researcher in the University Sydney Environment Institute. You're also a chief investigator on the project Food Lab Sydney with partners including the City of Sydney and Food Lab Detroit. Your research focuses on the communication dimensions of citizen engagement, participation and collective action in food systems, planning and governance. You have written two books, your most recent one published this year, voice and participation in global food politics and also global activism in food politics power shift in 2014. So my first question will be about your roots. You were born in Brisbane. How was it to grow in Brisbane?
1: Well I actually didn't spend long in Brisbane because my parents took us at an early age, my sister and I, to Harvey Bay. At the age of four I think we um, embarked on the adventure of having a family fishing business. My parents had the first charter booths fishing boat in Harvey Bay, which was a little boat called Reef Fisher. And they took tourists out line fishing close to Fraser Island and exploring the reefs. Then the family business grew and the boats got bigger. And by the 80s, we were doing whale watching. So it was very, very much a lovely childhood growing up in a tourist town.
0: How were your
1: parents talking to you? What kind of relationship did you have with them My father, his family came from Brisbane. Uh, My mother's family had German ancestry They initially came into the Mary River, into Maryborough, on a boat called the Herschel in the late 1800s. So my mother's family have really strong roots in the Harvey Bay, Maryborough district. So that's a quite interesting thing for me because they're all butchers. And these years later, here I am doing a lot of conversations about food and particularly these days talking about meat. And it's really interesting sometimes how you reflect on that sort of heritage. But growing up, family life was fairly fairly focused on the business. My parents were not tertiary educated themselves, but my mother especially was particularly keen for us to go to university. I won't say it was an easy life growing up because often it was quite stressful running the business, My parents obviously managed to withstand some of the ups and downs of the economy. The interest rates were really high in the 80s, for example. A lot of people were under financial stress. And that sort of stays with me a bit too. Probably more than that in terms of my current work, my parents were always very concerned about the environment. Obviously, that had a lot to do with the fishing business. When you rely on the environment for your livelihood, you tend to want to look after it. I got really strong messages about that when I was growing up. My father would embarrass me profoundly by turning the boat around so that a tourist could go and pick their empty beer can out of the water and things like that. He used to kiss undersized fish before he threw them back and educate people about why you only take what you can eat. You don't exploit all of that bountiful goodness that comes from the sea. Also at the time when we were growing up in the 80s, definitely, there were big campaigns on Fraser Island against sand mining. in forestry because Fraser Island or Kagari, the um, Aboriginal name, true name of the island, was really under threat from those extractive industries. It's a good story, Fraser Island, in that a lot of the natural heritage has been protected, but it's a sad story in a lot of ways too, not least, the displacement of Indigenous people as well.
0: You then studied media practice and had a few communications role in the not-for-profit sector. What kind of influence did it have on your choice to pursue a PhD
1: My first job out of university was actually high school teaching. So I was teaching geography and history in Queensland. And it was only when I ended up working in Canada, teaching for a while, which I really enjoyed, and then going to the UK and working in London. It was when I moved into publishing and marketing. When I came back to Australia, I worked for the Sydney Morning Herald for a while, then moved into non-profits. And I was always interested when I was working in the media about how do we get really important issues into the newspaper, because at that time when I was working at the Sydney Morning Herald between about 1999 and and 2005, all the transition to digital news was happening. Initially, we thought, well, this is a great opportunity because we can talk about stories in more depth. We can actually explain the complexity of a lot of the issues we're facing because we have the scope of hyperlinks and all the opportunity to tell longer stories. That has happened, but it's also changed in other ways so it remains really challenging for social actors without a lot of resources to get into the media so that really drove me in that non space too it was like how do you talk about really important things like housing poverty like social exclusion like food insecurity and when I was at the Sydney Morning Herald I was a marketing manager and I requested opportunity to complete a master's in media practice because I didn't have a formal qualification in media and at that time which seems to such a luxury now, the company would subsidise you. And they gave me some time. So I did the uh, Masters of Media Practice part-time. And while I was there, I started doing some teaching after work. And it was then that one of my colleagues at the university said to me, there's lots of opportunity for you to continue further studying because you did a dissertation and you enjoyed it. Do you want to do a PhD? I love writing and always wanted to write books. And I thought this might be the way that I get to write books and about things that I think are important.
0: So in your research, you're mixing communications apply to food systems and you study those links. How was your interest for food systems in particular started?
1: That was so random. I was doing some research with Amnesty International about their campaigning strategies and in my reading about NGOs, I started looking more broadly at other civil society actors and I started reading more about social movements. In the course of my reading, I came across Lavia Campesina, the peasant I literally read an article about their framing of food sovereignty and this approach to people's connection with the land and this idea of farmers as stewards of the land. And before long, my entire PhD had shifted in that direction, which my supervisor, he wasn't actually happy about that. He said to me once, oh, you've moved over to the dark side. You've gone from corporate public relations to talking about social movements. And I thought, oh, really, this is something that's going to be quite challenging because it's not something that fits into the neoliberal paradigm. This is about resistance.
0: Could you tell us a bit more about the failures of our current global food system?
1: The current food system is dominated by elite, powerful interests. I think that sort of sums it up. That corporate concentration of power is across so many domains of life now. And I think food is where it's being felt very sharply, very destructive to our health. And now we're finally realising the impacts of our corporate food system on the planet because it's very extractive. A lot of our industrial agricultural methods are damaging the environment, leading to increases in emissions. And also a lot of the things that we eat are designed purely to make profit. And now we have this crisis of climate change, which is just going to compound those existing problems.
0: You published a Global Activism in Food Politics Power Shift in 2014. In this book, you're looking at the food sovereignty movement pioneered by, Letty. American peasants organization, La Via Campesina, that you mentioned, what did you learn from observing this movement?
1: the thing that struck me most about visiting the farmers who comprise Via Campesina is just the diversity and the amazing range of difference in the approaches to the challenges and very much the fact that a global struggle for food sovereignty really is rooted in local contests over resources. So I focused in that research, which was from my PhD, on countries in Latin America, as you mentioned, Chile, Mexico, and then I also did a case study of northern Spain, the Basque country in Spain, and I worked with three organisations, one in each country. One of them in Chile was an organisation of Indigenous women who'd been very marginalised in the new democracy in Chile. For example, the fruit picking trade, Chile's party to all these free trade agreements, but a lot of people in the food supply chain were still very disadvantaged. So there were poisonings, congenital birth defects because of exposure to pesticides, human rights abuses, sexual harassment, etc. So these women were struggling really for the most basic rights. They were struggling for tenure, which a lot of women do not have. They don't own their own land. And they were also struggling to maintain the biodiversity through a seed-saving network. Chile runs the Pan-Andean aspect of that or network of that but then you've also got a global network of seed-savers which is largely led by women. The women I met in Chile told me stories of going out into the fields and hiding Indigenous seeds of potatoes in their skirts and planting them surreptitiously behind their husbands' backs because their husbands, as the owners of the farm, had bought into the seed packages that the big Corporations were supplying. And that's not to criticize the men so much because they were not offered a lot of alternatives if they were to compete in this growing global market. These women were also victims of domestic violence often too because they were doing these things without permission. So there was a real gender lens in that organization. Then I go to Mexico and talk to this organization of grain growers, and they were all sophisticated businessmen with quite a lot of sway in certainly, well, government circles and business circles. And they were really strategic. They were maximising economies of scale by buying warehouse and distribution facilities together for their grain and just trying to compete with the big American companies that had entered the um, Mexican market through the North American Free Trade Agreement. So they were competing against Cargill's and Archer Daniels Midland. Archer Daniels Midland calls itself supermarket to the world. And I find that really disturbing. Do you have to be the people who sell everything? Do you have to control everything? Again, reflected on on some of the impacts of these corporations in these specific countries the Spanish farmers were enduring an entirely different type of threat, including the building of big highways that were connecting Spain to mainland Europe, and also the closing down of their local abattoirs, and that were very important cultural elements of their food system. And the argument for that was, of course, food safety, when in reality, these local villages and towns had been managing their own food supply perfectly well for hundreds of thousands of years, really. (laughs) And that research and that book is really about how do you get all these diverse people on the same page. Isn't it interesting that they're actually all fighting some of the same battles? And how are they doing this amazing thing where they're actually creating a global frame that is food sovereignty? And what does it mean in different countries?
0: So how does food sovereignty translate in Australia? Is there food sovereignty movements here as
1: well? There is. It's a very difficult term to use, sovereignty, Mm -hmm. in an Australian context because it's a very fraught term because Indigenous sovereignty is something that still hasn't been recognised properly. And sovereignty goes to the heart of land and security. So I think that a lot of certainly policymakers find it threatening to talk about these issues and they don't really want to engage in a conversation that leads us to talk about dispossession and displacement and violence against, for example, Aboriginal people. But there's a lot of other people who are excluded from the food system as well. The idea of sovereignty in Australia is relatively new. Robert Peakin, who is the founder of Food Connect with his partner, Emma Kate Rose. And they are the founders of the Australian food sovereignty movement it created what they called the People's Food Plan as sort of a blueprint for what a national food policy would look like if it was truly democratic. But that's a grassroots organisation and it's a really important part of the Australian movement for a fairer food system, along with a whole bunch of actors, including community supported agriculture setups, cooperatives, and also a whole bunch of people who are running campaigns against genetic modification and the further expansion of corporations into local food environments. So it's a very fragmented, nascent movement in Australia, but people are certainly thinking more about not just the impacts of food on their own health and their own communities, but also about what our food ways do in terms of impacting people in other countries.
0: I was checking the different literature on food sovereignty. I spotted some comments from Christopher Mayes and his book settling Food Politics, Agriculture Dispossession, Sovereignty and Agrarian Discourses and he explains that while alternative food activists appeal to food sovereignty in agrarian discourses to counter the influence of neoliberal agricultural policies, these discourses remain entangled with colonial logic. Could you please explain what he means by that?
1: Chris's book is, I think, the first book to really confront this question. It is very much around the colonial history of our food system and the lack of recognition that anybody actually lived here when Europeans arrived, let alone managed the land. So Chris's book is one of a number of books that's come out recently, including Bruce Pascoe's wonderful Dark Emu, Bill Gamage's The Greatest Estate on Earth and most recently Charles Massey's Call of the Reed Warbler all of these books reveal something that unfortunately colonial governments knew already but chose to hide which was that indigenous people actually managed the land very sensitively and responsibly for 40 to 60,000 years before Europeans arrived and that they actually had quite sophisticated models of farming Chris's work tackles that really difficult question, which is how can you have a fair food movement when it denies or fails to acknowledge and confront this whole issue of whose land we are doing these practices on? It is unsettling and everyone should read it.
0: A common refrain from food sovereignty critiques is that peasants cannot feed the world. The FAO has demonstrated on numerous occasions that this is not the case. Peasants, variously described as smallholders, family farmers, produce more than half the world's uh, food and can be more productive than large-scale industrial or corporate farms. How do you explain that this discourse is still out there and what can be done to combat it?
1: As you say, the science supports the fact that agroecology, which is really a pillar of food sovereignty, which is not unlike permaculture. It's about returning nutrients to the soil, natural cycles, closed-loop farming. It's about not using pesticides and herbicides. It's about making sure that your land has ground cover so that you can conserve water. It's about water management as well. It's about having pluriactivity, so having crop diversity to mitigate mitigate risk, but also to just create an ecosystem that's as natural as possible, and to include livestock where appropriate in that, because they play an important role in the nutrient cycle too. All of that is something that is not new to the farmers of the global south, who unfortunately the term peasant in the Western world has this negative connotation, whereas it's something that those farmers are extremely proud of, because it's about the small-scale family farm. But they don't fit nicely into the corporate food regime, as Philip McMichael calls it, because... They don't subscribe to the monoculture, efficiency, large-scale production, export crop mentality that has been all about profit before purpose. It's not about keeping people on the land. It's a real contest of ideas. It's about paradigms. It's about, do you see this alternative as a way to not necessarily feed everybody in the same way in every context in every country, but recognise that diversity as so valuable and recognise the ingenuity of the farmers who've been doing it for so long, rather than having the expert technocratic knowledge come in for those who own the technology.
0: There's authors such as Antonio Roman Alcala, a researcher on food sovereignty movements for post-growth theory, who say that to achieve sustainable food economies and a non-growth food production, new forms of social power over food systems are needed and that we need to replace capitalism. Do mm. you believe achieving food sovereignty is possible in a global capitalist
1: I do, because I think what we have to do is we have to recognise that already a lot of these alternative systems exist alongside capitalism. So capitalism is something a lot of people would like to break. What I think we need to do is we need to take hope and inspiration from the people who are doing things differently. I've been reading Kate Raworth's book, Donut Economics, about different ways of thinking about the economy and growth. In fact, not thinking about growth and GDP as the sole arbiters of success in a country's trajectory, thinking actually about the well-being of people and also doing so within planetary boundaries and making sure that everybody in society is doing better. I do think that there is a shift in thinking that has its roots in movement that are centuries old, that has been about reconfiguring what our goals are, not just as individuals, but as communities and as countries.
0: In your most recent book, Voices and Participation in Global Food Politics, you write, in our affluent economies, we tend to depoliticize issues of food politics by focusing on consumption behaviours at the expense of organising. We need to evolve from consumers to food citizens and reclaim our agency. Could you please develop a bit more this idea?
1: The solution to our problems is often framed as an individual one, that it's all about the money we spend, which basically goes back into the whole paradox of the fact that it's all about the economy. When in reality, political consumption, which as I think of it, that means, yes, making very intelligent, strategic choices about where and what you buy, that might mean buying out of the conventional food system, avoiding Colesworth, which I do, simply as a matter of principle, because I don't like having a concentrated grocery market, and we've got the second most concentrated. Concentrated grocery market in the world. So obviously, I want to keep diversity in our foodscape. I want to support smaller suppliers, distributors, retailers. And I also want that sociality that comes from. Shopping at my neighbourhood store That's about the character of your neighbourhood as well And it's about not having to go into a non-space Which to me is what a supermarket is It's like an airport or a, an ATM It could be anywhere in the world But it just, just happens to be in your suburb But there's no character to it That's actually a really important message for consumers That if you want to keep a vibrant foodscape You need to support the little guys But the other thing about the depoliticization By boiling it down to your dog is it puts all the responsibility on the citizen, but no accountability on government. And again, no accountability on corporations who don't think in terms of these sorts of values when they market to emerging markets in the global South, for example. A lot of companies like Nestle, they're moving into Africa and they often do it under the guise of we're going to help Africans by supplying breastfeeding formula, etc. Now Now that, that gets us into a whole issue about public health, but at the same time, I'm not satisfied that they actually have altruistic motives in doing that because again it comes back to their bottom line so I'm extremely wary of these corporate social responsibility schemes that play out on a really large scale in the food world. It's a bit like food aid. It sounds like a great idea. Emergency food relief is definitely necessary, but governments have to stop subsidising US corn growers, for example, to overproduce and then dump grain in markets that then can't support local traders. It really transcends the individual consumers, and I think our governments really need to take a good hard look at what citizens, where the pain points are for citizens, and some of them are around food we've got food insecure people in Australia but we tend to treat them as dependents targets of relief rather than actual people who have agency and make choices and who need to be heard in terms of what's wrong so instead of getting us to buy things maybe they should get us to talk more and they should actually listen and that way we can actually have a much more democratic food system and the problems then will be addressed through the lived experience and actual evidence from people who are experiencing the problems.
0: How do you think we can make this problem as part of the political agenda?
1: The local government sphere is a really productive one. I know in in Brisbane, I've just been hearing about the golf course, which is going to become City Farm. The idea of having urban agriculture that can be administered by a group of local people, including council people, but also perhaps food policy councils. I think enabling legislation on a municipal level. That's the sort of thing we should be supporting, investing in. The local food policy council idea is something that's really strong in the US. A lot of people have found that that's the solution because it actually really addresses the particular conditions in that place. Supplier networks, the existing food ecosystem, the needs of the residents, including the cultural um, specificities of what people want in their diets and that sort of local management, that attention to actual people and social connection is really important. I think that while of course we need to have global and federal policies that actually support healthier and more sustainable food systems. A lot of the energy is coming from the grassroots.
0: Is there some current initiatives, and you've mentioned Food Connect, you've mentioned urban farming, that you feel are
1: game changers? There are a couple of things happening in Sydney that give me hope. Sydney is often compared in a negative way to Melbourne in terms of our activism around food and our municipal planning regulations around food because we don't have a food policy. So that's something that is changing. One project that I'm working on with the University of Sydney, of course, but also with TAFE New South Wales is called Food Lab Sydney and it is a collaboration that enables participants from the community to get engaged in TAFE training in hospitality so they do the kitchen operations certificate too and the additional second part of the course is about training in entrepreneurship to either even start a business in food but just how to get employment in food and it encourages people to think about what sort of food business and thinking about what we sort of call these good food enterprises in other words companies and businesses that do make profit because obviously you need to survive but that also pursue purpose in terms of cultural recognition. One of our participants, for example, is looking to bring Tasmanian bush foods to the table. And she's starting really small. She's just getting to know, develop her tastes and flavours and things like that. And she's working with Aboriginal bush food leaders in the region. And I think those sorts of connections are the really fruitful thing. When local governments, where possible, invest in those sorts of initiatives, it's great. But it also puts the onus on institutions like mine. Like the University of Sydney is a very wealthy institution in the west of Sydney, but we're not always a great neighbour. And I think that we need to really recognise that we have to give back to the community and support people in the community and also engage with them in a way that flattens the hierarchy. In other words, they're partners. They are actually co-designing projects with us that are for mutual benefit. And I think that is the onus is obviously on local businesses and corporations as well.
0: So you've talked a lot about the importance of the community, of the people, of inclusion. On the other hand, what we read in the media a lot is that technology and smart farming and innovation will solve the crisis we are facing. When it comes to the food system, Do you feel innovation is part of the solution?
1: Definitely. I think that there are some amazing innovations in agriculture. Our university agriculture department, for example, is doing a lot of research and development work on everything from aquaculture to growing urban crops, whether it be vertical farming, hydroponics. And then, of course, there's all the really amazing communications technology, which farmers around the world are already using, like farmers having access to the internet and data about digital crop reports and weather reports and things like that. There's no doubt that we've got this digitisation and automation of farming happening really quickly. And again, I think that we need to balance the technology, including the ownership of that technology, with the actual needs of populations working in agriculture. So we have to be really careful that we don't displace the people with the technology. At the same time, we need to exploit the technology and all these great affordances of these projects that are really going to help people produce food in different ways in the future, because we we are going to need that. I just want to make sure that it's not in the wrong hands. We'll talk a bit more about politics
0: and climate change. We observe a strong polarisation to the extremes on the current political scene globally. It seems that when environment deteriorates, societies turn to supposed strong men or religious zealots rather than smart, pragmatic leaders. Uh, So that's happening now. In addition to the dictatorships of China, Russia, or Saudi Arabia, a growing number of young democracies have relapsed into authoritarian regimes. Are you worried about this? And can we see it as a first sign of collapse
1: It's definitely one of the most stressful times that we can remember in global politics in terms of this crisis of leadership. The strong men is a good way of putting it, but they're just, they're kind of straw men, aren't they? Because what are they standing for? A lot of these people, I don't know if they've got the best interests of their countries at heart. In fact, I'm quite sure they haven't. It seems to be about power more than anything, particularly concerned about Brazil at the moment. And considering that the Amazon is such an important asset in terms of biodiversity and mitigating the impacts of climate change, we now have a situation where our farmers are allegedly burning down more of the Amazon so that they can compete in the global market by producing soy for China and also beef for the US now that Trump's lifted that embargo. So that's a really good example of how global trade impacts on environment and climate change. And this is where we need to change this situation where these straw men are running the world and really jeopardising the future.
0: How do you feel we can convince more people to take actions? Is it saying to people stop eating meat, for example, or just start a, a vegetarian regime? Again, it comes back to the individuals that push that it's because of your consumptions that we are where we are.
1: What type of discourse should we have? It has to be very nuanced. There's no one solution to this. I think that's what we have to remember. And as you mentioned, the discourse around diets has really escalated lately, and the. Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change report only three weeks ago actually told us that the way we produce food is unsustainable. And the headlines said, you know, eat less meat, save the planet. One of the headlines was, can we still eat Big Macs and avoid climate chaos? That was a good one. But my favourite one was veganism as the new climate virtue signalling, which was no judgment there. But fundamentally the debate about diets again tends to individualize the problem. I think that yes, we should eat less meat just for our health and we should think about what meat we eat. I only buy meat from an ethical butcher in Sydney and I don't eat much of it. It's not cheap, but Feather and Bone, Grant and Laura, who own that business, they know the entire supply chain. They know how those animals are treated and they know the conditions under which they're raised. And they also give you a fair price for quality meat. That's not something that's within everybody's scope in terms of if you had a family of four or five, that might be unsustainable. But that points again to, well, how much meat should we be eating? The fact is, if we eat cheap meat from the supermarket, we're not only supporting the corporate food chain, which doesn't supply adequate returns to farmers, but we're also engaging in practices of animal cruelty by my assessment. So I'm a meat eater but I'm very selective about what meat I eat. So I think that should be more of the messaging around diets, thinking about it, doing the talk, and t- how do we cope with this sort of apparently insurmountable challenge, which is when where climate and food and water and energy meet. We need to have the conversations with our friends within our communities. And if we engage in those alternative sites and places and spaces to have conversations and engage in food, we're going to meet people who are also part of our tribe what we need to do as a tribe is work on the margins and talk to the people who we know aren't up with this and who might not be interested we need to make people understand that it's important we need to get the media interested in it because the fact is we know we've got all the data, we've got all the science now about these things. Now we have to actually have the conversations about how we're going to act.
0: I shared this morning on GoSimon Twitter an article about the misogyny of climate deniers and its substance this article was highlighting that climate science for sceptics becomes feminised or viewed as oppositional to assumed entitlements of masculine primacy. Have you experienced yourself sexism, and do you feel it is a barrier to defend your ideas?
1: It's a really good question and the reason why I'm smiling is because I've, I've been thinking about this issue for so long now because I've written things for The Conversation, for example, the news site and had 250 comments come back and some of them have been so critical and it hasn't just been about me, it's been about my gender, it's been about my status as an academic, it's been about the fact that I'm not a farmer so I don't grow my own food. I live in the city, I work at the university therefore I must be of a certain political persuasion. And quite frankly, I think that's really naive because I think the boundaries between the left and the right are kind of redundant at this point personally. Mm-hmm. And within my workplace, I feel that we still are subscribing in universities to a quite masculinist research culture where data still is king and quantitative research. As much as we try and get our research from the social sciences into these debates and arguments about food systems, it's really challenging because a lot of the research methodologies are not about talking to people. They're not ethnographic. They're not about people's lived experience. They're more about numbers. I don't like to generalise because I've got a lot of fantastic female friends who are hard scientists as well. But I do think that the social sciences probably fit into that feminised frame. And I think we need to start recognising that these problems that we have around food, climate, everything from racism to hate speech, they're not problems that can be solved by any one discipline, they're problems that need to be solved by all sorts of different knowledges and that includes non-academic knowledges. I learned a lot from the social movements about the fact that you cannot forget that there are so many ways of knowing in the world and you actually will not capture a wide audience if you ignore people's understandings of the world. Therefore you need to be really intersectional in how you talk about these issues
0: so you were mentioning it at the beginning of the interview, La Via Campesina, and one of their slogan is food sovereignty is about ending violence against women. And you mentioned the problem of the land ownership that women are more affected with. Studies also show that the first victims of climate change are women because they are the first impacted by mm. catastrophes. Do you embrace this slogan and do you describe yourself as a feminist and has feminism influenced your research search.
1: I certainly do. I do. I'm really comfortable with that. I think that it is something that I've inherited, even though my mother would never have called herself a feminist. She's a very strong and very inspiring person in that she really believed that you have to have knowledge before you, you know have an opinion. And I think that in terms of my positionality on all of these issues, I would say I'm explicitly feminist. And I do agree that food sovereignty is about addressing that patriarchal system that exists in so many of the countries, certainly the Latin American countries I've visited, La Via Campesina was very alert to this early on. So they actually created a special women's section. From very early on in the movement, they had a Congress devoted to women because they realised that this was a very specific problem. And they also... Take measures to address patriarchy within the movement itself. Because as we know, social movements, they're not homogenous and there's lots of friction. And the whole idea of a social movement is it moves. So there's going to be action, it's going to be unsettling, it, there's going to be conflict within the movement. I think all of that's really healthy. But what you have to do is make sure that all the voices are heard. So again, it goes back to the voice and participation argument, which is have you created spaces where people are safe, where people feel they're able to express their opinion? And there is no doubt that women and girls are marginalised in conversations around food all around the world. The tenure issue, of course, but also the fact that they actually produce more than half of the world's food. And they are also, as you said, the most vulnerable already to some of the impacts of climate change. Addressing or using a feminist lens when we think about food production and climate change is essential.
0: Do you have days when you feel that there's no hope, that we won't be able to change the the system? If so, how do you get your motivation back?
1: I read really inspiring stuff. The best thing about my job is I get to just read all these amazing people. Anna Hopp sings Mushroom at the End of the World was one of my favourite books last year which talks about the sprouts in the cracks of capitalism and gives you just that vision of the fact that the world is really diverse and that you can't get depressed for too long because you're going to come across something amazing and I've always found that when I've in my work just the amazing ingenuity and the hope that people have even in really desperate circumstances. I went with a Brazilian colleague west of Sao Paulo in Brazil and we visited the landless people encampments by the roadside and met families with children living under tarpaulins. Some of them had been there 10 years. They had no running water, but they gave us coffee. They gave us food. We had conversation. They laughed. Their kids were playing. It was incredible to see people with so little but with so much at the same time some days I think about those people and I think well under the current political regime in Brazil they're they're being framed as terrorists those families. Now I know this is not a simple argument and it's a very complex issue but we need to actually keep hope for people like that. The other great thing about working with food is you only have to go and have food with friends or make a meal or I'm really lucky I live in a place with a lot of fantastic places to eat and just be surprised all the time by what people do with food and the joy they get out of it. I think that keeps me very hopeful.
0: I wanted you to react on a couple of news. It is difficult not to talk about the Amazon, so obviously, the first article I shared with you was published in an Indian journal called First Post. The title of this article was Amazon Fires Solutions Lie Beyond Nationalist Politics. A new solution must be global in scope. The problem of the Amazon went from being a problem ignored by many for months, uh, apparently, the fires were happening for weeks before it started invading the media, and then to being discussed at the G7 table. This is a typical case of human deforestation driven by global appetite for meat. So it makes it to the global issue that requires global solutions. And in the same time, all the conversation in the media, or should I say social media, has been around the need for people to become vegetarian or vegan. So tackling the problem at individual levels. How do
1: you read this issue yourself? It is interesting. These days when I tend to ask people, well, where's the fish from? And it's really interesting because in New South Wales, I think it was Nick Xenophon who proposed that there should be a piece of legislation that insisted that restauranteurs answer people's questions about where the seafood comes from and that bill didn't get passed. So it's access to information that we have a right to. So when we don't have the information about our food that we need, after we've asked the questions, we need to resist that. We need to chase that information. We need to have the right to know about that. It's the same argument around genetic modification of food. Again, that's not a black and white issue because a lot of genetic modification is of genuine benefit. However, everybody has a right to know what's in there food and how it's produced and where and who benefits and who doesn't. So these are the whole key elements of food sovereignty. It's about information access. When it comes to making decisions around beef, you can have an impact on global foodways by saying no to some things. I went to the Sydney Writers Festival this year, a talk by Annabelle Hernandez, Mexican journalist, who covers drug-related murders in Mexico. And she said, you know what? If you don't want to support the drug trade in Mexico, don't snort cocaine. Australia is a huge market for cocaine from Mexico. You're actually part of the problem. Why don't we think like that about food? Another article published in the
0: Washington Post by Dan Zak, how should we talk about what's happening to our planet? His point is actually that we do not need any more comments and words to qualify things and that the nature speaks for itself. We see it: climate change is all over the place. I don't think people can say, I don't know what's going on. But still, there is this apathy. Do you feel that we overcommunicate about it? or do you feel that we communicate about it but it's not using the right framing? What's your views on how we communicate on climate change?
1: I do think people are overloaded with the information and the data, but I do think that we need to appeal to people on an emotive level. One of my colleagues at the University of Sydney, Michelle St-Anne, she's the Deputy Director of the Sydney Environment Institute, but also the Director of her own theatre company, Living Room Theatre, which actually has its 20th anniversary next year. She has been working with academics who do research on climate change. Two years ago, she did a wonderful production called What Lola Heard, Theatrical Sounds from climate change and what she basically created was a composed theatre performance that was about, as she put it, bringing the elephant in the room out of the shadows by exposing climate change for what it is which is something that is socially constructed as a certain thing in the media but in reality affects ordinary people in very specific ways and what she does through that performance is actually follow the experience and death of an elderly woman who's living in a heat wave and by by overlaying not just the academic research, the sounds, but also creating a visceral experience for participants. At one stage, you're in the audience and there is uh, an actor moving throughout the crowd holding an electric bar heater, and you actually feel the heat on your skin. And I have never forgotten that because that to me really brought home the reality of climate change. It's going to be what we see, feel, hear, think, speak eat, it's going to be front and centre. So I think that that type of experience of what the future might look like, that sort of scenario setting and bringing people into a space where that could actually be conceivable is really powerful and much more effective than any academic journal article that we might write.
0: Would you have a cultural reference a podcast, maybe a film that you would like to recommend to our listeners on this topic or not something that inspired you lately?
1: I'm always reminded of Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring. Before she wrote that, she wrote a trilogy about the sea. And Under the Sea, like Silent Spring, has this really lyrical quality. She wrote it like a beautiful piece of literature because she was a scholar of literature as well before she was a biologist. And she really captured people's imaginations by reminding them about how valuable this ecosystem was to them and how incredibly lucky we are to have this wealth of unimaginable Biodiversity And that language really made people read her books and it really shifted people's thinking around chemical pesticides. And that was back in the 1960s. So we need to look to our artists and our performers and, and support them to do their work, which is about making people feel something.
0: Thank you so much for your words, Alana. It was great to
1: discuss with you. That's a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. Visit our website, gosimon.org, to find out more about our guest and see all the books and references mentioned during this episode. Please share your thoughts, comments and questions on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Let's keep the conversation going.